human evolution, right? Took a long time. We did all sorts of stuff. Sounds to me like Cayman country. Welcome back. This is episode 63 of Herpetological Highlights. Uh, I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. And I suppose Hello. A little bit, little bit of an apology for the delayed... Uh, no, 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 we're not sorry, no. Well, I'm a little bit sorry. It feels like we had a break over the Christmas and we came back and we said, no, we're going we're gonna to get into a good routine again. And bam, he's been spattered with other smaller delays and all sorts going on. Yeah, we've been, well, I don't know. You could say we've been lackadaisical, but I think that's a bit unfair. We've been very busy, but now there's going to be episodes coming thick and fast, so yeah. don't worry. <laughs> You've never heard that before. Um, okay. Yeah, so episode 63, what, if, what are we even talking about? We're talking about crocodiles, I believe. Hopefully we're on the same page. Mm, close enough, yeah. Crocodilians in general, at least. So not only crocodiles, but also came Yeah, I've, I've got a, I've got a uh, connected paper that's not specifically about crocodiles, but it's got some cool stuff to talk about. Okay, okay. Well... Um, we did this episode slightly differently didn't we where i know about one thing and you know about the other thing and the other one i've actually completely forgotten what you're going to talk about so i'm quite excited oh wow so it's a proper adventure for you yeah this was this was an effort to save time and get an episode out yeah well i think yeah i did a whole bunch of stuff on crocodiles because there was um we did an undergraduate practical at the uni which was about crocodile locomotion in part and so i was like well i'll just learn some stuff about crocodile locomotion and it just so happened there was this really cool paper that had just come out so yeah just thought read it and actually it all stemmed from a video you sent me on facebook you yeah, were just like check this out falling over. <laughs> yeah uh which is just bonkers so yeah should we get into the first paper yeah yeah please okay so this is Hutchinson, Felker, Houston, Chang, Bruggen, Kledzig, and Vliet, 2019, Divergent Evolution of Terrestrial Locomotor Abilities in Extant Crocodilia. And this was published in Nature's Scientific Reports. And mm. this was quite a good one because it's not quite a Thunderdome, but it's got some kind of Thunderdome-esque elements insofar mm. as yeah. they're taking some animals which just want no part of any human interaction and kind of goading them to do stuff and like perform which is quite fun um, <laughs> <laughs> well it's almost like um, um, sort of circus-esque and who doesn't love going to the circus and seeing the animals perform those were the good old days oh and the so, good old days i'm glad those days are over this is nothing like... I love that you have to be serious and qualify that at the end, just in case anyone's actually thinking we love circus animals. But, um, oh, no, yeah, we love, no, we love the animals. We hate the, the performances that they are forced into doing. That's a very different... Come on. I'm one of these people where I'm more interested in seeing the animal. It doesn't matter what kind of condition state mentally it's in. I just want to see it. <laughs> and I want to see it do stuff. Oh, God. <laughs> Dance, monkey. <laughs> No, it's obviously not true. But this paper, I'm only joking about the um, circus type stuff, but basically these were a bunch of scientists who are really interested in the locomotion of crocodiles, caimans and alligators. And actually, it's pretty crazy how very little we knew about so many different species prior to this paper actually coming out. There's mm. been like lots and lots and lots of studies on alligators because they live in America and there's lots of research scientists in America. So not and the Chinese alligators then? Say again? Not the Chinese alligators then? No, the... Uh, sorry, I should have said. Oh, yeah. You know, this is the same. <laughs> sorry, the American alligator. We do have an international audience who might have been confused by my flippant use of the colloquialism for american alligators alligators american alligators and uh yeah if you live in america and you're a reptile chances are you've been studied pretty heavily because there's loads of research institutions there's loads of really really willing students who want to find out about you really and so yeah i think there's a ref there's a point in this paper where they reference the fact that alligators can't do a specific locomotory method and it's got like 
one to 20 on the references directly behind it. It's like a whole line of references. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this paper actually expanded the knowledge on the locomotory methods of lots of different crocodilian species. And yeah, I mean, the big finding, the really big finding, and the thing which will almost certainly take you aback if you haven't seen a video of it happening before, is that some crocodiles can gallop. And if I mean, you don't just, know what a gallop is... Right, that's why I was hoping you just like break down exactly what's going on with this gallop. The word doesn't really carry the weight, you know? No, the word doesn't really mean a lot. I mean, if you think about galloping, you think about a horse. And then if you think about it for a bit longer, you can maybe imagine that the horse's back feet and front feet are kind of moving in tandem. So you have like the front feet, then then the back feet moving to catch up with the front feet. That is the movement. That is the locomotion. And it's different from the kind of um, sort of S-shaped locomotion, which is more characteristic of crocodilians. So and the crocodile tradition. Model. Yeah, exactly. Normally, if you th- if you see a crocodile, and it's pretty much the same uh, locomotory method as what lizards use, and that is the one hind foot will go forward, then the opposing back foot, and then the hind foot, which matches up to the back foot, and then the back foot. And w- what that basically does is it... <laughs> that, 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 I appreciate I the words you said and in the correct order, <laughs> but my mind could not you're... keep up with that. I mean, I can picture a lizard walking, but that's because I know what a lizard looks like walking. Yeah, that's... so it's it's actually hard to describe with words. It it's much easier to describe with pictures or videos. But basically, they move and their body stays in like an S shape and their tail wags from side to side and counterbalances them and... Yeah, it's just like your standard sort of like lizard waddle where their body shakes back and forth. Google a video of a leopard gecko walking, preferably from above, and you've got the perfect example of this like wibble wobble. Um, mm. And they call it they call it a symmetrical gait, which I think is a misnomer. I think galloping is symmetrical and this is asymmetrical, but I'm not going to confuse everyone by trying to swap around the terminology which now exists and is fundamental to literature. Yeah, well, it's symmetrical. It's symmetrical if you split the animal at the waist or like the stomach but i know what you mean you'd you'd think you'd do it nose to tail wouldn't you and then it's asymmetric yeah Yeah. interesting hmm Hmm. i'm glad you got that bit so um yeah basically (laughs) i think the best thing for people to do to understand the fact that crocodiles can gallop is to just google crocodile galloping and you'll be equal parts delighted and terrified by what you sp- what you see in front of you because it's just it defies any sense of what you would expect crocodiles to be doing they basically just gallop and obviously they're doing this on land they're not doing it underwater um and it's kind of like usually an anti-predator thing if something spooks them they'll gallop away from it and um yeah it just looks absolutely bizarre where they just do these it's basically like a sequence of bounds really close together Yes, um, that's quite a good way of describing it because it's not like a horse galloping is quite fluid. A crocodile yeah. galloping is less elegant. I think it's there's a distinct lack of elegance. Okay, in yeah, the well, entire thing. Yeah, it's definitely less elegant than a horse. But horses, I mean, horses are some of nature's most elegant creatures, anyway, aren't they? I suppose they're sort of supple and they shimmer. And they've got beautiful brown eyes. Whereas crocodiles, I mean, they just have cold, dead eyes. <laughs> and and when they Whoa. bound, it's ghastly. <laughs> These poor crocodiles, they deserve better. <laughs> no, they are beautiful animals, of course. But yeah, so they did all this work. They went to St. Augustine uh, Alligator Farm in Florida. And they went to well they had the keepers help them and they set up a sort of range for each crocodile depending on its size or alligator each crocodilian and they had this like runway and they pointed painted white white dots that's a hard word thing to say they painted white dots on the kind of key points you know when you see benedict cumberpatch and he's being smaug and they've got the dots on his face so that they can oh, yeah, map motion it. Oh, yeah, capture dots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, precisely that. So they just painted those on the crocodiles. And then they got them to run along this arena. Um, and then, yeah, they recovered that footage. And they looked at the like points of movement and motion. And they compared the different gates between the different species. And the paper goes into a lot more detail. And if you've got 
a real interest in this. I would urge you to go and look at it because it is fascinating. Is but scientific the key findings reports uh, open access? Um, mm, I suspect not. Yeah, but I it's probably on ResearchGate. Too. It's probably on ResearchGate. Yeah. Uh, and if it's not, email the authors. They'll be delighted that you want to read it. True. Um, and so, yeah, what they created was this neat little phylogeny, which shows the animals from the superfamily Crocodiloidea, which is crocodiles, can gallop, but not all actually did. But I think they've got it up to like seven species that can, where prior to this paper, we only knew about one or two or something like that. And then hmm. crocodilians from the superfamily Alligatoroidea, which is alligators and caiman, actually don't gallop. They are trotters. So they do a similar thing where they can like raise their, it's not similar, but it's different to their normal locomotion where they're belly crawling and they actually lift their body up. They stand up on their hind and front legs, lift the body up and they just like trot, which is just walking fast. Yeah, it's like an elevate, they elevate them, they elevate themselves. So it's just same asymmetric gait, no symmetrical gait. I don't like that. Asymmetrical. No, symmetrical. No, symmetrical, it's, right? It, well, it is whatever. It's the yeah. same Do you see what I'm saying? It doesn't make yeah. any sense. I, in this context, it feels very strange. Yeah. Whoever coined those terms has a lot to answer for. <laughs> they, they probably came from somewhere that it made a lot of sense. Yeah. But point being... Like, if you were looking at something with two legs, it's always going to be asymmetric unless you jump. And maybe that's where it's come from. Because mm. if you just look at one pair, it's asymmetric. Yeah. No, that's still wrong. It's still wrong, yeah. Oh, forget it. I like that you tried. I tried real hard, man. You gave it a good go, but it doesn't make a blind bit of sense. Anyway, so crocodiles and caiman, they are trotting, while crocodiles are sometimes galloping when they need to. Obviously, it's only in extreme circumstances. But what's interesting is they plot a little phylogeny in their paper, and you can see that crocodiles have the galloping behavior. Alligators and caiman, who are in the same superfamily, do not. And so there's a suggestion there that either there's an ancestral form of crocodilian that was galloping around, and then subsequently <laughs> the ancestor of alligators and caiman lost it, or actually somewhere at the base of crocodilians, this galloping evolved. The answer is as yet unknown. Um but the other cool thing they talk about is that they actually suggest that maybe this behavior evolved when crocodiles were a lot smaller, because obviously for a huge hulking beast to evolve this behavior seems quite far-fetched. And actually, hmm. crocodilian crocodiles that do this locomotion method of galloping, they tend to only do it until they're about six feet long or two meters. Um, once they get to that size... So say like juvenile Nile crocodiles will gallop, but you can't goad one bigger than two meters into galloping. It just becomes, probably just becomes too taxing because crocodiles of that size on land are extremely ungainly and very heavy. But you will get Cuban crocodiles, which are two meters long. They will do it all the way up until they're fully adult size. So there seems to be this kind of two meter long cutoff where galloping is no longer an option for crocodilians. Um hmm. But yeah, I mean, that's the paper. They basically found out the the terrestrial locomoting methods used by crocodilians are extremely diverse. Pretty much all the locomotion methods used by mammals are used by them in some shape or form. And uh, yeah, I mean, it stands to reason these things have been evolving since the Cretaceous period. Like you'd think by now that have tried everything. Um, well, everything that exists has been evolving since the Cretaceous period. Don't be like that, Ben. <laughs> they... <laughs> They, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. They've been around since then. They've, oh, been, a, they've God. been around. You, you disgust me, you pedant. <laughs> yeah, easy, easy target. Easy target. You listen to me. You listen to me. These things have stayed the same since the dinosaurs. Anyway, exactly they think the they same. evolved. They think they probably evolved this behavior when they were smaller and had longer legs and had to run uh, away from and looked dinosaurs. more like cats. They were more like cats. Okay, well, yeah, that's it. That's it. So crocodiles gallop. And literally, there's no point in having listened to this podcast if you're not going to look up the video. We'll put it in the show notes uh, and we'll share it on the internet on our social medias. But otherwise, if you're on your phone right now, unless you're driving, Google crocodile gallop. You will not regret it. There's also one of the supplementary videos. Um, one of the little crocodiles <laughs> is running along galloping and then it falls over. 
and <laughs> it just amuses me. Yeah, even the supplementary videos which aren't of crocodiles, like there's one of um, what is it? Uh, I can't remember. Some other little miniature caiman of some sort. Anyway, it just it's running really fast, and it comes across the screen. It's like and it just looks hilarious. So yeah, brilliant. Yeah, they're really good. Yeah, and there's another one where you see there's like a longer video which I'll try and find, which is like five minutes or no two and a half minutes or something, and you see a crocodile, and it's first it's trotting and then you see it decide to gallop and it's mm. quite cool to see the conversion of all of the bits of its body doing one thing and then swapping to another so when they're sort of like doing their raised walk their tail is like half raised and it's kind of still flopping around to the side doing a bit of counterbalancing but then once they start galloping the tail like straightens out and flies up and you can literally see the crocodile make this decision to use the tail in a different way and then the resultant change in the way it's moving is quite cool yeah, they, I mean they're fun videos, aren't they? Because you you can see all sorts of little little subtleties to the movement that you wouldn't ordinarily uh, ordinarily get from just a video of something moving around in the wild because it's all controlled. So you yeah, you can see a lot of detail. And certainly, my experience of crocodiles is seeing them in captivity, where generally they're just going to be chilling about. They're not going to be running around. Um, that too. And Aye. so when you see them startled. It's very entertaining. A sight to behold, some would say. Yeah. But then, that's it. So, crocodile moving. And I think, Ben, you've got something to tell us about crocodile bones and how they might be... I don't... I don't know what it is. No, I've got absolutely nothing to do with crocodile bones. It has nothing... It's got to do with crocodiles and bones, but not crocodile bones. Okay, let's come up with a better segue then. Um, So... Those crocodiles are... <laughs> you you saying you don't like the bumbling segue? I listened to a podcast oh. the other day and they actually plan all their segues. And uh, although it's a little bit contrived, I did quite enjoy it. It kind of made me feel quite fuzzy. Um, Enjoyed the theatre. Yeah, exactly. But obviously we've goofed this mm. one, so maybe you should just introduce the paper and get on. <laughs> So we've got another paper uh, from Scientific Reports, in fact, uh, published 2018. Really? Yeah, I hadn't realised that either. I feel like we're doing giving <sighs> Scientific Reports undue attention. Mm. Nature should be paying us. They've got enough money. Yeah. Nature. <laughs> Take that. <laughs> um, and this is a paper by uh, Domiguez Rodrigo and Baquidano. Apologies for the pronunciation. Um, distinguishing butchery cuts from crocodile bite marks through machine learning methods. Yeah, using Skynet to detect whether your bones have been eaten by crocs or whatnot. Okay, so a bit of context. Wow. Human evolution, right? Took a long time. We did all sorts of stuff. But one of the most important things we did, potentially, maybe, I don't know, I suppose it's a matter of opinion, but tool use. Yeah. I think we can all agree that's pretty important. Mm. Uh, yeah, tool use and fire, those are kind of the two yeah. big ones, aren't they? So to get a real handle on how quickly we have, we evolved, how it sort of happened, where the first instances of tool development sort of occurred, stuff like that, you need to be able to ID what's tool use and what isn't tool use, specifically in the context of cutting tools and stuff like that. Because how do you ID whether cutting tools were used or not. The tools don't exist anymore. They've been lost to time, most likely. But what might still exist are the bones of the things that were cut. Yeah? So maybe if you're finding, I don't know, some ancient human site and alongside them are a bunch of bones that they have, non-human bones, you want to get a good idea of whether those marks on them or what was done to them could give you an indication that it was tools involved or whether they were just, um, you know, damaged by other means, by, like, just a passage of time, potentially. There are there are sediments and erosion processes that can make marks that look very similar to tool use, um, but also they can be made by animals. So the examples they gave were things like vultures, uh, claw marks from larger mammals, but also, bringing it all round, 
crocodile teeth. Mm. And there is a, I don't know, they're, they're, I, didn't, I didn't do too much deep reading with this because of time constraints, unfortunately, but the paper was sort of motivated. And don't make excuses. Gonna, just, just, oh, just, no. you, you, you're crushing it, man. I'm loving I'm this. I'm going to make more excuses because I don't want to <laughs> accidentally throw people under the bus for something they didn't do. But, so bones last longer than meats in the environment? Well, I, in this context, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And looking at the bones, you can you can sort of understand what happened to the bones. And that, then you start making mm. inferences from that. But I feel like the, the point of this paper was there was another group. Um, I guess you pronounce that Sal et al. Um, last year in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. I think it was last. No, not last year. It's 20... It, uh, in 2017 um, <laughs> not even close and they were bringing up this this issue of maybe some of these supposed tool use marks were actually made by crocodile teeth and this paper is a sort of response to that saying no basically we can be pretty confident they're tools or whatever but it's less about the specifics and more about this uh this new, well, I suppose it's not a new method as such, but a, a development in the method using machine learning to ID it. So instead of relying on people's judgment calls, you can feed in a whole chunk of data to this, this machine learning algorithm and hopefully it will pop out whether it was crocodile teeth, tool use, or some other way that these, these specific marks could have made in, the, made in the bones. But what's nice about How it... How are they... Um... Yeah. How are they taking the measurements of the bones? Are they CT scanning them? Oof, that's a that is a question which which does not come up in the methods of this paper because they're using a an existing data set from two previous papers. Um, uh, okay. But one of the one of the things they get at, which makes this method sort of so useful, is so traditionally people are picking out these things by maybe two or three different measurements metrics. Uh, like, okay, angle and depth of, of cuts, maybe some type of different striation, things like that. With their method, they're throwing in, I can't remember how many different things they were measuring, but a heck of a lot. I'm going to see if I can quickly find it. They basically have a suite of uh, variables that they're throwing into this, this algorithm. While Ben finds the variables, I'm going to do some musing... What kind of crocodiles? Where is where were these bones taking place? Uh, Nile crocodiles <laughs> was what was bringing up the um, the sort of doubts. This is the, the the original paper that this is more a response to. And how old are these bones? Oh gosh, how old are those bones? Now you're asking the questions that I don't have answers. I think uh, pipe uh, early Pleistocene. That's what they're getting uh-huh. at. Fossil record from early Pleistocene. Okay, uh, I cannot find the details on exactly the metrics they are using, but the point of it is that there is a whole bunch, basically more than you can you could sort of feasibly deal with on a sort of manual basis. Um, and what's nice is the machine learning stuff will basically tune out the ones that don't really matter that much. Yeah, okay. So, game plan. Make a make a machine learning program that can distinguish between crocodile stuff and actual bite marks. Uh, actual bite marks? Actual tool, tool use marks. How do you go about doing that? First step, you've got to build a data set where you actually know the origin of the, of the marks. Yeah? So, you yeah. need to basically make, make those marks in bones or whatever so you've got something to verify. Yeah? And that's where they're sort of referring back to these previous papers um, where they sort of performed practical experiments, procedures, whatever, to, to generate something that they knew. Okay, these ones are made by crocodiles. These ones are made by tools so they can train the model to distinguish the two. So first step is you, you do that. You have a big data set. Then you chop it into two sort of sections. You take one section and you show it to the model and you're like, all right, learn the things that distinguish these two categories, crocodile and non-crocodile. Make your little model. Yeah, all right, got my computer program, what next? You take the bit that you 
data set that you set aside and then you only give it the information. You don't give it whether it was crocodile or not crocodile and you see how well it does. So it's this, we call this uh, cross-validation. Where it's both and how well did it do? Mate, it did remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Get in there. Um, was it 96% of test marks were ID'd correctly? But that was averaged over, they ran something like eight different algorithms. Um, some of them were 100%. Like several of them were 100%. And I think it really, it wasn't just 100%, I mean 100% accurate, but 100% sensitive and 100% specific. So that meaning, meaning you are always every single true positive, well, every single actual positive you were getting true which is fine, but the easiest way to achieve 100% sensitive is to make it classify everything as true, and then you will always get all the things that were actually true classified as true. So that's only half the battle. Second half of the battle is identifying all the things that are actually negative, negative, which is uh, how specific the test is. Both of those 100%, like perfect balance between being sensitive and specific. It absolutely smashed it, mate. Absolutely smashed it. Um, that's they really even awesome. sort of did a little bit of and sensitivity so, testing where they pulled out some of the variables and then sort of reran it. And even then, the accuracy was pretty damn good, like near perfect. And and so, um, so the implication of this is that what there was some stuff which was misrepresented, and now it can be represented correctly. It, or is this it's essentially a, a rebuttal to the, a paper suggesting that some of the things that were classified as tool use might be crocodiles? And uh-huh. they've sort of come back and said, hey, no, if you if you go through it in enough detail, you'll be able to ID everything that's tool use and everything that's crocodile. They're not really getting into a specific case with this paper, more just trying to end the debate when it comes to, okay, I found some new, you know, let's say, let's say you found a new set of bones that you want to ID there won't be a situation where you'll be like, oh, I don't know, maybe it's crocodiles, maybe it's this. And you won't have to make some sort of judgment call there. Instead, there are ways of getting getting it done and being very confident about it. But also, what's nice about this sort of method is it gives you some sort of idea about how confident you can be in that classification. So it's... I bet you that all the, uh, all the bone and bone mark experts listening to this podcast right now are feeling pretty nervous about this new technology. Well, I mean, yes and yes and no. You're like... defunct, old man. Because <laughs> <laughs> you still have to have a lot of knowledge about what's going on to put this stuff in context. Yeah. It's okay, you can be pretty confident mm. it's one thing or another, but how does that? what does that actually mean? Because yeah. uh, this ain't going to tell you that. For sure, it, yeah. it, there's there's a, there's a lot more subtlety going on with this paper that I am not privy to because I don't. This is well outside my field, but I liked. I wanted to bring it up just to. It's very rare we get a paper that has sort of herpetology aspects to it, which I don't know. It, it it's just rare we get we get much that isn't pure herpetology. You know, it, it's every now and again we get something about. Um, like mechanical me- mechanical stuff like gecko feet stick to things so we can build robots or something yeah but uh, I quite like something where you've got herpetofauna having some sort of decent impact on the implications of another field like I think the other good example was the I don't know if we ever did it on the podcast or discussed it um the giant snakes of Indonesia or whatever and how large snakes may have driven human evolution previously and the sort of cultural impacts of that and things. Like, I, it's fun to see that overlap and it's and it's fun to see hepatophonor actually be mentioned outside of stuff that's purely herbs, you know? Hmm. I think we covered we covered a paper where people in Indonesia were getting eaten by reticulated pythons with some frequency right, that's, at that's some the point one. The, in history. The gre- is it green? I think it was a paper by Green. Oh, I I won't remember I that. Think so. I think it was a Harry Green but, um, paper. But oh yeah, no, you might be right. right. Actually, now you've said that. I don't yeah. think it was first author. I think it was second. I think it was some. I think it was a anthropologist and Harry Green. 
Mm, very cool. But yeah, you're right. Like it is nice to see other people who study other disciplines and don't care about reptiles being forced to learn about them. Yeah, at least even if, you know, sort of in a cursory sort of way, because you could, I, I think that was the other cool thing with this method is it is essentially, okay, had the classification of crocodile, non-crocodile, but well, maybe it was that way around, maybe it was tool, non-tool, in fact, but potentially it's the sort of thing that you can feed, almost keep it completely ignorant of and see if it can pick out groupings or, or clusters or whatever and go about it that way. It At the end of the day, it's just damn well impressive what uh, what analysis can actually pull out of very noisy data at the end of the day. Mm, yeah, right, too right. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So... Yeah, there's another episode on crocodiles in a roundabout way. I have. How do you about? How do you mean roundabout? I mean, well, I mean yours. Yeah, it's crocodile locomotion, which is definitely very crocodile actually, isn't it? Yeah. And then your paper on crocodile and their influence on bones. Yeah. To be fair, the bone one's pretty, pretty, <clears throat> pretty loose. Yeah. Just so uh, different, you know. Yeah, it's good. So I think now. We're on to our species of the bi-week, aren't we? Oh, yes. Which is... A subspecies uh, of the bi-week. Yeah, it should be called the subspecies of the bi-week, shouldn't mm, it? This time. Yeah. So it's Balaguera Reina, 2019, rediscovering the Apoporus caiman, Cayman crocodilus apoporiensis. Notes from a long-anticipated expedition. This was published in the Journal of Herpetology. So yeah, subspecies of the bi-week. So Cayman crocodilus, aka the spectacled caiman, so named because of its spectacle-like ridge between its eyes giving it the appearance of a nerd, <laughs> uh, where it's common, <laughs> which is where... <laughs> so, yeah, it's got one of the broadest distributions of all crocodilians, ranging from Mexico to Peru and Brazil. And it's also been successfully introduced by good old humans in the United States, in Florida, uh, Cuba, and Puerto Rico. And there actually are thought to be as many as four subspecies, uh, because there's lots of genetic and morphological variation, and obviously being such a widespread species, if you're into subspecies, lots of opportunities to name some. Uh, this study took place in Colombia, and the Apoporus caiman, this subspecies of a spectacle caiman, is endemic to the middle and upper Apoporus river basins in Colombia, hence the name, the Apoporus caiman. And basically, way back in the 1950s, this subspecies was identified and like described. Um, but there was a bit of confusion about whether it coexisted with the nominate subspecies because the original authors were like, we found so many of this one, but we also found so many of this one. And it's like, what do you mean? That can't be right. Don't, don't you um, love incomplete reporting in papers? So you can... <laughs> yeah, I mean... Like the point of writing stuff down is to communicate it, damn it. Uh, it was the 50s, you know... The halcyon days of trying your first Coca-Cola and... And finding some caiman and fully describing where yeah, you found them and what they were. Yeah, and uh. like, you know... You know, it's boomer time. It's boomer time. Anyway, so way back in the 50s, it was described and there was a bit of confusion. And the IUCN and the Species Survival Commission were anxious to get these caiman looked at and better understood because obviously they could be a relevant conservation unit, which is very poorly understood, which is not what you want to be if you are a conservation unit, imperiled animal. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. You want yeah. to be well understood. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, whatever, yeah, you know, it goes both ways. Anyway, the Apoporus caiman is unique looking. It looks slightly different than other spectacle caimans because it has quite a slender snout, which is an easy way of identifying it, which perhaps suggests it has a penchant for fish. Or other aquatic life. Maybe mm. frogs? But anyway, there's could be frogs. Yeah, could well be frogs, actually. That's a good mm. shout. Or um, maybe little rats. Water rats. Yeah, water rats. Um, but yeah, so this Apoporus River, there's a nice description of the river, which is a thousand kilometres long, Oof. well, 1,060. 
Uh, that's a lot. That's a lot of caiman. And this is, yeah, potentially. And this is a description of it. It's a whitewater river, highly productive, with high levels of suspended sediments that result in near-neutral pH, high conductivity, and a pale, muddy colour. Sounds to me like Cayman country. Mm-hmm. And this bit... It flows past abandoned oxbows that may contain stagnant black waters that are seasonally connected to the main river. Caymans be there, I'm sure. And so, yeah, basically, we covered this topic on the podcast recently, didn't we? Because this was the sub this was the subspecies that was being searched for in assistance of aids from with assistance of aid from. Um, the Crockfest right. event. Yeah, it came up um, came up a couple this... of times and I I think we basically just felt, well, we should just commit to it being a species of the bi week at one point. You know. Yeah, subspecies of the bi week. Chatting about it's enough. Um Yeah, there's some cool information about the way this uh came and exists and apparently uh, a lot of local tribes, because there's three species of um I think they're all caiman locally, um, two of which are dark in colour, and then there's this one, which is light in colour. And so the local tribes call it um, the white caiman, which is, oh, but I'm about to butcher this pronunciation, but the cachires, cachires, cachire, cachire. I don't know how it's pronounced. But anyway, so yeah, there's these three species, two of which are darker, one is light, this is the light one. And so... It's not really used as a food source by local tribes people because in some mythology they actually represent condemned men um, and it's kind of traditional not to eat them. And other people say, actually, it's just because they taste horrible. We don't eat them. <laughs> Apparently it well, has quite a... Um, yeah, that may, both, both are good reasons, to be fair. Yeah, both are completely legitimate reasons. And um, yeah, apparently the meat can be a bit slimy. Apparently it's more often, if it is caught and eaten, it's uh, used as either fishing bait, so it's catching fish, or people will feed it to their dogs. Mm. They've got like hunting dogs or whatever. And so um, back in... But that actually changed a little bit. So back in the 1960s, rubber tappers came to Colombia... And they were also interested in buying the skins of animals to export back uh, or back it up into America and things like that. And so that actually increased the hunting pressure on these animals because the the um, spectacle caiman, the apoporous caiman skins were actually perceived to be quite desirable because of their lighter color, uh, more valuable than other caiman, which were darker. And so there was lots of pressure on those and also other animals like jaguars, ocelots, otters, but that hunting pressure actually ceased in the 1980s. And the reason for that was because cocaine became much more popular. And so coca fields began cropping up all over the place. And so the people no longer needed the money from skins because they could make all their money from the cocaine leaves or the coca leaves. Which, uh, yeah, who said cocaine's never done anything for civilization? It, it, At least we've now got caiman. Yeah, it's weird <laughs> stuff like that, isn't it? <laughs> Because it is weird. You'd yeah. never like people telling the story of like cocaine in Colombia or something like that. Like the Cayman wouldn't get a wouldn't even be a footnote, would they? But you flip the script and you no. start talking about the Cayman first, then the, suddenly the, the cocaine industry is is a massive, yeah, a massive deal. It's just yeah, yeah. It, it's it's odd how how almost random chance. Can yep. uh, can protect species and stuff, or you know, vice versa. It's like all these these species that still exist in like military firing ranges because no one goes there. <laughs> yeah, well, this is it, and yeah, I think it's important not to downplay the horrors that have resulted of the uh, international drug trade, mm. especially cocaine. But you know, in this instance, it has actually probably helped out the Apoporus caiman not to be um, over. Exploited. But I think that's what makes it extra weird, isn't it? It's the stark contrast between the two. Yeah, yeah. It's a real, it's a real sort of, um, yeah, dichotomy. Yeah. So the largest male and female Apoporus caiman caught in this study were 195 centimeters total length for the male and 85 centimeters total length for the female. I think they do get a bit bigger than that, but those are the biggest ones encountered during this study. And he found quite a few, didn't he? How many were there? How many were I spotted? Think? 105. Let me just double 
double check before. A total of 105. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. So that's quite a lot, which suggests that actually they're not doing too badly. Although obviously that's just a small, just a one, a snapshot in time. But I mean, it, it's at least it's nice. It's just, it's much better than going in there and finding two that look really sick. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it seemed like they were pretty easy to find. That's good news. And so, and so yeah, basically there's um, this subspecies of caiman is alive and well in Colombia and yeah, Apoporus caiman. Hope it stays that way. Yeah, and um, I'm glad we've kind of like got <clears throat> the full arc now where we talked about Crocfest and then subsequently the research has happened. So yeah, congratulations everybody. The uh, the Apoporus Caymans back in action. Yeah, seriously. Awesome news, mm. really. Well, it was always in action, but now science is aware of it being in action, which is always good. And uh, I also... So that's our subspecies of the bye week. And then, as a kind of addendum to that, we've got a bonus species of the bye week because it's not strictly speaking what? a yeah I know crazy it's not strictly speaking a reptile or amphibian then but it, it does have something to it does have something to do with reptiles and amphibians and so um, this paper is a new species of pseudoacanthocephalus. Acanthocephala echinorhynchidae from the guttural toad Sclerophis gutturalis bufonidae introduced into Mauritius with comments on the implications of introductions of toads and their parasites in the UK. Wow, implications of the introductions is a fun little four-word snippet to say. Um, you lost me with the big words so, I didn't understand, but you pulled me right back with a double mention of toads. Toads, toads, toads. I'll permit this so, surprise basically, species of the bye week. This is from the Journal of Helminthology, which I can pretty much definitely say we've never covered a paper on before, paper from before. Um, and this is by Smiles, Elaine, Wilkinson and Harris. And that name Elaine might sound familiar because Steve Elaine, um, who I actually saw this weekend. So congratulations, Steve, on this paper coming out. And this is a species of, they call them well, pseudoacanthocephalus means false spiny-headed worm. So I'll tell you the story. <laughs> you what? Basically, <laughs> some people went on holiday to Mauritius. They came home and they put their clothes in the washing machine, as you do. Come back off holiday, put your clothes in the wash. Yeah. And they're hanging them out to dry. Okay. And what should roll out? Yeah. A toad. There's a toad in the house. Excuse me? And it's come from Mauritius. They'd accidentally packed a guttural toad in their luggage. How the blazes and does that happen? Flown home. So the toad just chilling. You know, I don't know. Maybe it was, it was just chilling about in the hotel was, was room. Was it in hand luggage or hold? Uh, I'm assuming if it was in dirty clothes, it was in the hold. But I don't know. Well, then, I would think you'd notice a you'd notice a toad if it was in your backpack. Yeah, maybe. Um, I guess depends how big it was. Anyway, was it alive? It. It was fine, yeah. It was completely Whoa. unharmed. It survives to well, this, this is why day. I was asking whether yeah, it was still in the alive. Hold. Like that must be a. I suppose no. the clothes might have insulated it and kept it safe. Yeah, but you'd also think that the clothes might have sort of begun to. I don't Smothering. know. Yeah, I suppose it's yeah. a toad. Yeah, I mean the toad has had a hell of a ride. Damn. There's no two ways about it. It went through the washing machine. I'm surprised you're not focusing <laughs> more on that. <laughs> what? I I completely that completely passed me. The toad was in the washing machine. <laughs> The toad went in the washing probably, machine. It probably went into some sort of like deep, like torpor when it was on the plane, and the washing machine just like woke it up. It's like, oh, yeah, quite possibly. Yeah, this is what living is, as it's going round and round. You'd hope in it was a. You'd hope it was a cool wash. Um. Anyway, the toad emerged from the washing machine. You know, angry clean. but unharmed. Yeah, very clean as toad. <laughs> probably felt great. Mm. Yeah. Nothing like a good spin cycle to clean out the old paratoid glands. <laughs> anyway, so this toad came from Mauritius. And then eventually, um, because I think this occurred somewhere near Cambridge, Steve is a member of um, Cambridge Amphibian and Re Cambridge and Peterborough, I think it is, Amphibian and Reptile Group. And so they said, hey, who wants this toad? And Steve was like, yeah, I'll have the toad. Like, you know, give it a nice home. And so... He ended up with the toad. And so 
there's actually more to this story because the guttural toad, although this one has come from Mauritius, they don't actually belong in Mauritius. They're a non-native species. They're actually native yep. to sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, of course. Go on, you got a question. No, I was just thinking whether... Uh, what, what's, the, uh, what's the Latin name for these guys? Uh, Sclerophis gutturalis. Okay, yeah. <laughs> to- inv- um, toads being introduced to places. Classic. Yeah, so this one, it's in Mauritius, uh, despite being a native to sub-Saharan Africa. And in sub-Saharan Africa, I think they're pretty chill. They'll inhabit lots of different environments. Uh, they're tolerant of a wide range of temperatures, etc. Washing machines. But humans introduced them to Mauritius. Yeah, washing machines, yeah. Spe- washing machine specialists. So um, <laughs> humans introduced them to Mauritius because they wanted to try and control cane beetles, which were causing damage to the sugar crops. And uh, I went to Mauritius. Oh, yeah? I was very fortunate to go when I was a kid. And there is sugar cane absolutely did, everywhere. So these toads single... are doing a damn fine job. Oh, right. You're saying they did a good job. They ate all the cane beetles, did they? I don't know. No, I don't I'm know. I'm willing to bet that this, sa- this sounds so similar to the cane toad thing, where suddenly they the basically toads can't are. get the beetles because the beetles fly when the toads are out. And then when the toads aren't out, the beetles are chilling and vulnerable. So there's a complete mismatch between diurnal nocturnal activity. At least that's the suggestion why the cane toads failed so spectacularly. I would assume that these toads are nocturnal because being a toad in the daytime in Mauritius would just be 0% fun. Yeah, you get cooked. But, yeah, but I'm not sure. Um, I don't know how well they've done their job. Probably not that well. <laughs> but anyway, so this oh, toad, toads. right... Its ancestors grew up in sub-Saharan Africa. It was transplanted, or its ancestors were transplanted to Mauritius, where they made a good life life for themselves, either eating or not eating cane beetles, not sure. Regardless, they're doing well. Holidaymakers come on holiday. Toad decides, I've had enough, stows away, (laughs) comes back into the UK, ends up going through the washing machine, comes out of the washing machine, goes, at last, finally... Redemption. It gets to go and live with Steve, have a nice, comfortable life. And then Steve decides one day, oh, what's that? There's something going on there. The, the toad has pooed something out, which doesn't look like normal toad poo. So Steve gets it sent off, uh, presumably, to, uh, presumably to the other authors of the paper, who are experts on such things. And yeah, got the worms looked at. And sure enough, they're actually a brand new species of worm, previously unknown to science. And... Yeah, they get a name to described as Pseudoacanthocephalus goodmani, which named for uh, Steve's mate, who is Mark Goodman, I believe. Um, what a what a wild ride for that worm, too. Man, crazy for the worm. Yeah. Although, to be honest, for the worms, I can imagine actually, like, being inside the toad... They probably didn't really notice any of that other stuff that was going on, except probably temperature fluctuations. Well, they probably they they went into the toad in Mauritius and they came out in somewhere in Cambridge. Like, what a! I suppose it wasn't really doing much when it came out, so no, maybe it was just no. sort of nonplussed. Yeah, but <laughs> it's just a mad story, really, yeah. and it's quite a cool. It's a cool example because the I think one of the take home messages that they try and impress upon you in this paper is that this is a non native species which has gotten to the UK by chance, but it's also carrying with it a parasite which is both novel to science and almost certainly novel to the UK. And that kind of gives you an idea of how easy it is for these things to enter. Um, So yeah, yeah, don't don't you know watch out, watch out for stowaway toads. That's the that's the the message, right? Yeah, well, I think the message is a little more broad than that, oh. and I think people can probably infer it themselves. Okay. But, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's definitely fascinating, and it's a cool paper. And so, yeah, we would have been remiss not to cover it on here. And so, yeah, congratulations, Steve and the other authors. Um, yeah. Hmm. Saw Steve this weekend at the Hurt Workers. He's on fine form. Um, Glad to hear it. Yeah, big up to everyone who was at... Big up to everyone who was at Hurt Workers. <laughs> no. It's nice. Saw some people. It was a good, good conference. Yeah, so that's I, it. I think so. I think it's just any other business just to, just to round things off. We learn about crocodile movement. We learn about bones. We learn about a tiny little caiman crocodile that's been refound, And we learn about some sort of spiky worm. Yeah. What a roller coaster. Crazy times. So um, have you got any other business? Um, do I have any other business? No. 
No, I don't think I do. Okay. Well, I've got a couple of things. First of all, I just wanted to say hello to Chris McCloskey and his son, Theo. Uh, Apparently they're avid listeners of the podcast with a mutual friend. So, hey guys, (laughs) hope this comes as a surprise. Uh, And also, we've got a new Patreon called Trent Fur. So, Trent, thank you very much indeed. Yeah, massive thank you. And... And uh, yeah, apologize. Yeah, you know, apologies for slightly delayed episodes and stuff. Hmm. Yep. But it's going to all change, and we'll never, never stop. So don't worry. <laughs> hey man. Uh, good. Yeah. So far, so good, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's like it's going well. But anyway. Um, so yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, you can herphighlights at gmail dot com. We're on all the usual social medias. Uh, don't forget, you can become our Patreon and donate to the podcast for as little as one dollar a month. It's really kind when people do that, and it um, helps cover our various fees. And yes, yeah, yeah it's worth mentioning. We like, still like, sell... That was actually something I was going to bring up. With if you're listening to this on a platform that shoves ads anywhere in the podcast or either side of the yeah, podcast, stop. Stop. That's, there should not be ads. That's yeah, that's that's it doesn't help us out. All that money just goes to platforms. Yeah. We don't have we any don't, ads, anything along yeah. those lines, because that's not what we're about if we can seriously. I hate it. adverts. So Yeah. If your podcast has ads in it, God, that's not, that's us, not us. And just listen somewhere and else. We don't get Podbean any definitely from doesn't. That. Yeah, Podbean definitely doesn't and um we're going to get the podcast on Spotify as well. So Yes, people have been requesting that. We are working on it. That will be yeah. there soon. I'll probably do that this week. So if you want to listen to it on Spotify, keep an eye out. Hopefully the next episode will have an announcement that it's on there. I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's I don't even think it's remotely arduous. I just have to do it. Yeah, I think it's a tick box. I think it's I think it's fine because we're with Podbean. But the point is if there are ads, they're not us. That's not we don't make any money from any ads. That's literally just whoever whoever's you're getting the podcast via. Cool. So yeah. Um, that's it really I think and uh, yeah thanks for listening and catch you next time yeah thank you for listening That alternate universe, where instead of having yeah. pet cats, you got little pet crocs. That would be so much better. Damn. What a world. Wow.